Hey, welcome back. Uh, next, we have a panel session on China's foreign policy. The session is chaired by Professor Christopher Hughes, head of IR department at LSE. This panel is also joined by Professor Robert Sutzer and Professor Zhang Rui Zhuang. Professor Hughes, please. Thank you very much, and um, welcome back to this lecture theatre, everybody. And this is the um, the panel that deals really with foreign policy. And it's uh, called When Titans Waltz, which I guess probably means uh, two countries in particular here. Um, so we have two excellent speakers here, uh, Professor Zhang Rei Zhuang from uh, Nankai University, Professor Emeritus now, a product of Berkeley as well, yeah, a PhD from Berkeley, so has a very interesting perspective on China-US, I'm sure. Um, and that is really the focus of much of his publications. His research has, throughout his career has been on uh, Sino-US relations, but not just that. And he's got a recent book out, well, 2010, it's recent in my standards, um, called The Unharmonious World, which uh, is, sounds like a very appropriate title, even more now than it was <laughs> in 2010. Uh, and then we have Professor Robert Sutter, from, who's Professor of International Affairs at the Elliott School, George Washington University, who has a long uh, academic career, but also career in public service, in the Congressional Research Service, various national intelligence posts, and an incredible um, catalogue of books, so over 20 books, I think, um, looking at Chinese foreign policy, many of which we use not just in research, but in teaching, as well as great textbooks, Again, a lot of focus on China-US, but I, speaking to Professor Sartre and looking at his new project, he's sort of broadening out more to US-Asia relations, which is probably a good idea if we get a bigger context here. Um, so uh, we, I would like us to welcome these, these two speakers uh, to the LSE, and we, uh, then we'll have, they will speak for about uh, 25 minutes each, and then we'll have questions and answers. Okay. Professor Zhang, would you like to go first? Right. Which way have we got it in? Thanks very much. It's really a pleasure for me to be here. I uh, was great, very grateful to be invited, and I'm, uh, I was so happy that I uh, composed an outline and I, I made you all get one. And so you all have an outline a handout that I uh, had prepared for you. Um, the focus of what I want to do today is look at China's rise, particularly in Asia, uh, and then I look at uh, President Xi Jinping and his approach uh, to challenging the United States uh, in Asia, but other places too, and what they mean. And uh, most recently, the discussion is, suggests that they mean a power shift, that China is displacing the United States, and particularly in Asia. Uh, so I'd like to look at that, uh, look at China's p challenges, and, uh, but I don't see a power shift. And so I want to explain that to you. Um, uh, I, I see China still encumbered and limited by a lot of circumstances, which I'll try to explain. Uh, I've spent a long time looking at this issue, China's rise in Asia. I've written a, a, a number of books, and I had to get a whole handle on Mr. Xi Jinping's policies. It's hard to assess this. The previous panel indicated that sometimes there's a lot of uh, rhetoric from China, but the reality is not so clear sometimes. 
And so I had to do that for this book. So I have a, a, one of my books is this book on Chinese foreign relations. This is the fourth edition. Uh, it's hot off the presses. And to do this one, I had to get a fix on Xi Jinping. And, uh, and so this is my fix on him. And I'm going to share that with you. Uh, but it's a part of a long effort that I, and this kind of a talk that I give to audiences in the United States in particular. Americans get excited about China's rise. Sometimes they get excited because they really think there's a great opportunity. This is, wow, we're going to make a zillion dollars with this China rise. Uh, but the other side of it, and this is the darker side, which I think is becoming more evident in the United States, is that they say this is a real threat. And we have a real problem here. And let me tell you, uh, I give this talk to calm them down. So just, just let's calm down, everybody. Uh, because when Americans get excited, and I've had a lot of experience working with the U.S. Congress in particular, they make bad policy. <laughs> it's much better if it's sober and uh, it's, you don't have to be friendly or unfriendly. It, it has nothing to do with that. But you have to be calm. And, uh, and so I'm, this is my calm down talk. So I'm going to uh, share this with you, if I may. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to look at how Xi Jinping is challenging the United States. This is fairly serious. And it leads many to believe that China thinks it has the upper hand and is pushing the U.S. Uh, around a bit. And then I'm going to talk about three constraints that Xi Jinping faces, that China faces, and they're serious ones. One of these is the situation in Asia. And the situation in Asia constrains China. And so we're, I'm going to go into that in some detail. And then at the end, I'll look at, uh, give a, a brief remarks on the outlook for, the, uh, for Xi Jinping's approach to the United States. Because I see some signs of change in this, which I'd like to share with you. So I'm going to follow the outline more or less. Uh, but obviously, I'm not going to cover everything in the time allotted to me. So some of this stuff is here for you to read later. So the beginning, the first page, deals with China's power, economic, military power, political influence. Uh, and, uh, and then, but if you turn to the second page, this is where Xi Jinping challenges the United States. And, this is, uh, and these are the issues that matter. You know, just to summarize why they matter, I'd like you to consider this. You all know the President of the United States, Mr. Obama. He's very deliberate. Have you ever noticed how deliberative he is? And he's very measured, very articulate, and very careful in how he uses words. And he is very deliberative in foreign relations. And, uh, and so when he dealt with China, he, obviously the U.S. has differences with China. China has differences with the U.S. He hardly ever talked about these in public for the first eight years of his administration maybe two times or three times a year he would say something bad, negative about China. In the past year or so, I've counted maybe 150, 200 times he's been critical of China. The frustration level has reached the point where he has changed his rhetoric. He's tougher publicly toward China. And so this is emblematic of what the Xi Jinping activities have done, whether it's the South China Sea, cyber issues, internal repression, uh, and the AIIB, which we were just talking about, uh, and other, uh, and of course the military buildup. You know, with the, you all saw the military parade. Did you all see the Guam Buster missile? 
This is an intermediate-range ballistic missile that's designed to destroy Guam. <laughs> it's not friendly. And so, this is a, so we, the frustration level is a little, little high for these sorts of things. So that's my barometer. I think we have a bit of a problem here. And, and, uh, but, but with this overt show of China dream, gets into the, it gets in the way of – it affects U.S. interests in a variety of ways. So the question is, is China at the stage where it can really push the United States out? And I say, I don't think so. Now, a lot of people do. A lot of people see a power shift underway right now. I don't. And I want to explain why. And that's uh, – so it's a little – that's why I wrote it down. So you can see the reasons, uh, because, they, uh, because I've been working on these for a long time. There are three sets of reasons why China refuses to confront the United States. The first is they've got a whole slew of internal problems, and we all know about those. And, uh, but the impact of those are very hard to measure. How does this constrain China? We don't really know. But they're very important, it seems to me. The second is China is very interdependent with the United States. So if they do bad things to the United States, it's going to hurt China. And we think, I think we understand that. But the third thing that doesn't get nearly the attention it should get is that is China in Asia. And China is encumbered in Asia. And it's encumbered in a variety of ways, and it's sort of counterintuitive. And yet this is the area that's of most importance in Chinese foreign relations. This book, and just about every other thing I write, points out over 70% of Chinese international activities are in Asia, around the rim of China. This is where it really matters. This is where the security and sovereignty issues are. There's no PLA elsewhere. This is where the PLA is. And this is where China meets the United States in a whole series of ways. And, so there is, and it has big impact on Chinese development. China does more trade with South Korea than they do with all of Africa, for example. So these kinds of things are, are – so Asia is very important. And yet what we find is that China isn't secure there. And my argument is if China really isn't secure in Asia around its rim, it's probably not going to be a big, powerful interna international actor. It's going to be very hard to do that. They're going to have a tremendous sense of vulnerability. <clears throat> and so we need to look at China's – relationships with Asia. Get a sense. How good are they? How powerful is it? Maybe China is dominating Asia. Maybe it will be the leading power of Asia. And I, I start laying the reasons why, yes, there's a lot of progress China's made in Asia, but boy, is it mediocre. They've been trying to make progress with Asian countries for 25 years. All you have to do is do a uh, – there's a lot of th words here that I use, but the bottom line is measure. China's been trying to improve relations with Japan and other – well, let's say it's not trying to improve relations with Japan. But there are three other important countries, big countries in Asia, and Japan's one of them. And Japan's relations with China today are awful, the worst ever. They're getting a little better, but they're the worst ever. India, another very big power. China's relations with India today are worse than they were 10 years ago. Russia, they're closer today than they were 10 years ago. But it's still not so clear. And you start doing middle powers. South Korea. China's relations with South Korea were much better 10 years ago than they are today. Australia, same deal. And so China's record here is encumbered. They've been not very successful is what I'm getting at. And, uh, and so this is why. Well, they have lots of reasons. They have a, a very bad legacy. The history of China in Asia is awful if you look at the first 40 years of the PRC. 
and hardly anybody in China knows about this. And so this is a very big liability. And then the second is China is very self-righteous. I come from America. I know what it's like to be self-righteous in foreign <laughs> affairs. China is worse. China is no, no kidding. It's worse. And, uh, and, and, and therefore, when you have a dispute with one of your neighbors, it's never China's fault. You, you know that, don't you? China has never acknowledged making a mistake in foreign affairs. The PRC has never done this. It's just like my beloved Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> exactly the same. They're just like that. So the exceptionalism of China is remarkable. So they're very hard to deal with as a result. If you have a dispute, it's really hard to deal with. Uh, okay. Now, there are lots of strengths that China has in the region, and those strengths are on page uh, four. It talks about the different economic, uh, diplomatic, uh, infrastructure initiatives, uh, that the, and the military. But these often work at cross-purposes. The military uh, seems uh, a little disturbing to the countries in the region. Uh, but Chinese limitations are also there as well. And so the, the military buildup is a problem. The negative legacy is a problem. The strong nationalism is a problem because all the other governments in Asia have strong nationalism too. And so if you have a dispute, it, it's friction. It leads to friction. Uh, and so there are lots of other things that you can talk about. It's an interdependent type of uh, economic relationship China has. And it's win-win formula, which will come into play, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to talk about Xi Jinping's initiatives, because these economic initiatives really look like a big deal. This isn't the first time China's uh, pursued going out economic policies. They've been doing this since the beginning of the 21st century. Big, in, big pushing out of investment uh, in a variety of ways. It, ha it focused heavily on development in areas that would lead to resources for China. But it's been going on for a long time. And what's the pattern we see here? Uh, and sometimes it's loud thunder and little rain. Big announcements, very little deal. Well, what are you talking about? Indonesia, big country. China, the president promised $30 billion of investment in Indonesia when he visited there about a year or so ago. An Indonesian think tank went back and looked at the previous 10 years of the Chinese agreements with them about various things, and they said it's under 10% what they did, under 10%. If you do a similar assessment in Pakistan, it's under 10%. And so you have, a, you have a, the reality and the, action and, and, the, and, uh, and the rhetoric are very different in these kinds of cases. Why? It's hard to invest in these places. They're not really good to invest in. It's unstable. There's all sorts of reasons. But the image and the reality are very different. China is the, the uh, economist last year had an, a piece on Africa. China's cumulative uh, investment in Africa is 5% of foreign investment in Africa after all these years. Latin America, same deal. In Asia, it's 10%. It doesn't dominate in investment. And yet everybody thinks it does. And so this is a mistake, and we need to ground ourselves a little bit more. And so you look at these, then other things like what else... Uh, causes Chinese, oh, did you know that Chinese investments on balance don't make a profit? I guess you knew that. 
you know, they, in other words, the majority of them don't make a profit. Uh, of the mining deals the Chinese have, international mining, you know, a lot of this is the mining deals, over 80% fail. These are from authoritative Chinese experts. Um, and then you look at the, the places where they've had a lot of uh, investment, where they've had a lot of economic influence, and what's happened? Well, sometimes they don't like it. Myanmar. China had this, you know, open field in Myanmar, investment and infrastructure, and the government said, oh, had enough of that. And the influence that comes with this is low. Taiwan is another case. And so, and even countries that are very dependent on China for trade, both South Korea and Australia, send more than 20% of their exports to China. And yet, are they dominated by China? How's China, as I indicated earlier, the relationship with these countries in China today is worse than it was 10 years ago. It's not terrible, nobody's fighting with China, but it's not making much progress in improving its position. And then, okay, then the other part of the outline gets into U.S. strengths and weaknesses. And U.S. weaknesses, everybody knows those in the United States. I assume you know them, too. You know, we had George W. Bush. <laughs> and, uh, and that was, seemed to be a lot of problems with that. And there were. And, uh, and then Obama's weak. Everybody knows Obama's weak, you see. So, so we had those kind of problems. But, you know, we have a lot of strengths. And this is something that when I... I, I try to share this, and I have time to share this with you, too. What are American strengths? And there are a couple that I think I really want. Why is the U.S. leading power of Asia? And it's for this reason. I've done a lot of interviewing in the region. I talked to lots of government officials. I've been, and and this, is, uh, this is what they told me. This isn't written down uh, in many places. This is what they said. They said, <clears throat> well, I, th summarizing, in Asia, governments matter. They make the decisions. They're not failed states for the most part. And what do they want? Well, they want development. Almost all of them, not North Korea, but everybody else. <laughs> they, 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 they want development. That's the, the source of their legitimacy. And what do they need for development? Well, they need a lot of things, but what they really need is stability. So I asked them, I said, is Asia stable? And they look at me and sort of squirm and they're funny looking, and then they look at me as an old American. And they come back and they say, this is a strange country. It's big and it's far away. And for some reason, this strange country sees its interest in keeping stability in Asia. And this big country is willing to spend $100 billion a year to keep stability in Asia. And this country's young people are willing to volunteer for their military and come to Asia and get killed if necessary to keep stability in Asia. No one else will do that, and we need it. So this is my little spiel for, on why the U.S. is important. Will the U.S. keep doing this? Think about it. When I compare the U.S. to any country in Asia except maybe for Australia and New Zealand, perhaps, the U.S. is really weird. It is so weird. It's a mindset thing, folks. It's a the U.S. sees its interest involved in this sort of thing. And the, the country's willing to shell out all this money, and the people are willing to get killed because they see this important for their interests. So that's a big asset. The other asset is the interdependence economically with the United States and the markets of Asia. 
You all, London School of Economics, you all understand this, and those government leaders all understand it. Lots of this trade with China is processing trade, and a lot of it depends on exports out of the region. Singapore ambassador said in 2013, ASEAN-China trade, it ultimately involves, manu it becomes manufactured goods, and those, of those manufactured goods, 22% stay in ASEAN and China. The rest are exported out to the United States, Europe, and so forth. It's very interdependent. So, and then another feature about Asia is that these governments are all looking out for themselves. They're hedging, calculating. And so when they look at China rising, they worry. And so they come to the United States, even if they don't like the United States, and often they don't like the United States. And they come to the United States and we say, stay here. We want you to stay. And they do a lot of things to help that. So I don't want to go into this too much, but, uh, because I don't have much time, but I just want to talk about in that context, and Mr. Xi Jinping facing big problems in the region, problems that he's exacerbated with his activist approach. What am I talking about? North Korea. I'm talking about Japan. I'm talking about the South China Sea. And now I'm talking about Taiwan. And in that situation, what we find is that he's, he's prepared now to mend fences. He's compromising with Abe. My goodness, I never thought I'd see him meet Abe. Think about it. He's compromised with Vietnam. He, works hard. he went to Vietnam. He's trying to patch things up with Vietnam. He's trying to ease tension with North Korea. He tried, and then North Korea did its usual thing. And uh, so I'm not sure where we are now, but he did try last year to mend fences with North Korea and with the United States. In his visit to the United States in September, he got the message. Obama's frustrated. You better do something about it. Now, is he doing much? He's mending fences. But he's still a bold leader, and he has a strong imperative to be bold. And so we may have more friction with him as we go along. But I think we are in an interlude right now where he, and this may continue, I don't know. But uh, I, that's where we are in U.S.-China relations. Uh, it's, we have a frustrated president, and, uh, and he is on the moderate side of the debate in the United States. You look at every other presidential candidate that said anything about China, and they're a lot tougher than Mr. Obama. What exactly they could do is not clear. But the feeling of frustration, when China comes up, it's frustration. Nobody's talking about nice things about China anymore. They're all talking about bad things. So, and I am too, I'm sorry. Uh, so I will stop talking and, uh, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Okay. I think you calmed us down there, but I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, let, let me first say uh, I want to thank the, uh, the uh, student, student Union of LSE who invited me to uh, this forum and uh, um, I just arrived yesterday and I saw how those uh, volunteers uh, from this uh, organization, how they work and uh, uh, 
I would applaud for them for their um, uh, tremendous devotion uh, to this uh, uh, to this uh, uh, public good cause. Uh, <laughs> uh, I uh, I uh, I mean this is a very rare occasion that I saw that a student a student organization can do such a good job because they told me that. They have run this forum uh, for uh, eight years now, and uh, and at this time they told me that uh, they have uh, mobilized 60 volunteers to work for this forum, and uh, and as you can see, it's very well organized. So um, I think we should applaud for that. And among the audience, if you come to see a big fight between American and the Chinese scholars <laughs> about the uh, Sino-U.S. relations, I uh, would say that I, uh, I'm going to disappoint you because uh, I agree with uh, Professor Sutter mostly about what he said. About what he said about the, uh, the Sino-U.S. relations, about the... Uh, well, I'm sorry to say this about the uh, negative side or liability of the Chinese foreign policy, um, and also about American role in uh, in East Asia, uh, Pacific East Asia. So, um, uh, basically, we are, you know, on the same uh, wavelength, um, and uh, I'm going to give you. Today I'm, I'm going to talk about, uh, uh, I divided my talk into three parts. Um, okay, first, China's rise and its new assertiveness. Second part, prospect of building with the U.S. a new type of great power relations. And the third one is China's position on the existing international political economic world. Originally, I prepared this talk in four parts. I omitted one because they told me that your time is limited. So uh, uh, originally I have another part which focus on the uh, true, the truth about, uh, about China's national power, national capacity or national capability. Um, I agree with you know, what uh, Professor Sutter just uh, talked about uh, talk about that. Uh, there is, uh, there's. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did I get it wrong? No, no. Bottle? I think you did. Yeah. <laughs> so why, why are you they laughing? Laugh. They laugh I, I thought I got the wrong bottle. <laughs> uh, you know the myth about China's uh, uh, so-called second power place in the world is very much an exaggeration. So now I, uh, but still the, uh, you know, it's very, uh, the time is very, uh, very tight, so I have to run through the, uh, the PPT with you. Uh, I will ask you to, to follow me uh, to run through all these things. Uh, okay, first China's rise. These things, you know, th these things you're all familiar, so I, I, I just, uh, you know, 
just run through it. Okay, GDP grow uh, very fast, and uh, if in 2009, past Japan, the past Japan becomes the second largest export over to Germany in, in uh, uh, 2010, be become number one in the world. Merchandise trade over to U.S. in 2012, number one, and uh, of course the foreign exchange reserve uh, as early as uh, 2006. Uh, it's the number one. Everybody knows that China have, you know, so, so much money, and everyone, everybody want a part of it. Um, and that's not a good thing. <laughs> so we talk about the uh, the assertiveness. Uh, when I talk about China's assertiveness, I divide it into two parts. I and I, I, I ask you to to distinguish between these two different assertiveness. One is the popular one, and the other one is some sort of uh, assertiveness on the uh, uh, on the uh, official position. Let, let's first take a look at the popular assertiveness. Okay, they said that the China is number two. Power in Chinese is Lao Er, Lao Er. It's a superpower. China century, bipolar war. You know, every 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 such phrase I have the uh, you know the uh, the sources and reference. Just I don't have time to give you all these. Uh, and, and many of these phrases, not the invention of Chinese, by Chinese, but by Americans, like G2, chip. <laughs> chip America, right? These are all the Americans' uh, invention. And we have all, oh, Martin Jacquez, I, I think he is related to this school, right? Yes, I'm very is, much is so, he yeah. here? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> when China rules the world, see, it's very sensational, right? When China rules the world, the end of the Western world and the birth of new global order. All right, this is the, uh, okay, this is by Chinese author Yan Xuetong. Uh, unfortunately, he is one of my uh, Berkeley schoolmates. Uh, how China can defeat America? I just, I, I just don't get it. Why you want to, you know, put the oil on the fire? <laughs> to fend this, you know, China threat. China unhappy, you know, Zhongguo bu gaoxing. The white cosmos is down. Can you believe this? They like it. First, we want to quell the villain 
and appease the law-abiding people, and secondly, we want to manage more sources than what China has got to make a contribution to the people of the world, since history has proved that we can do a better job than anyone else. In other words, in other words, they want to be the number one, the cop, the sheriff of the world. Second, the CEO of the world. <laughs> That's the two functions they want to play, right? Okay, China model, also known as China pattern, China past. This is okay. If that's the uh, that one was a popular um, uh, reading, Th this is a serious academic book, uh, China model. Okay, and. Uh, the the subtitle is this. Okay, yeah. The brand new model of great power rising in human history. And the very unfortunately, the author of this book is another of my birthday schoolmates, <laughs> Tang Wei of Beijing University. I mean, oh, okay. Destiny, this book came out just a uh, couple of months ago by Wang Yiwei of the uh, Zemin University. Uh, why China can lead the world. Okay, so give you an idea, you know, what the, uh, you know, I cannot say most, but many, many Chinese, ordinary people and serious scholars. This is what they think about China now. But I would say that China's Chinese government, high-ranking officials, they still keep a clear head about China's true position in the world. So these are the uh, evidence. Um, Xi Jinping said China is still the largest developing country in the world. Okay, uh, last year when he gave a speech at the, uh, the King's College in Belgium, he told his audience that China still have 200 million population in poverty and to impress, to give a clear idea to his audience how, this how serious is this problem. So he said 200 million is the uh, total population of Germany, France, and the uh, UK put together. All right. And uh, Li Keqiang also said that we, he, he said, when I travel abroad, I always have the feeling of being coaxed. Who you? He said, 我经常感觉被人忽悠。That—that's—that's his—that's his, uh, that's his uh, uh, the original word. Are okay. Mm -hmm. With about 200 million people in poverty. Wow. Time flies. So this is uh, Li Zhaoxi, former foreign minister. If you still remember him. 
He said, now there are talks about China being number two of the world, and together with the U.S. being called G2, who buys it? <laughs> Only a sucker does. <laughs> the original word, the original words, 只有傻帽才是. <laughs> This is my translation. I, I think Samo just being sucker, right? Do <laughs> you have a better translation? <laughs> and Huyo uh, just uh, coax. <laughs> I, I don't know if you, if you, if you think that's uh, perfect. <laughs> okay, so now we have, we, have we, we see this assertiveness. Mostly, mostly on the popular media, and uh, we see this uh, um, this uh, uh, conservativeness on the uh, on the official end, and uh, so there's a there's debate about the Taoguang Yanghui and uh, uh, okay, I omit this part. Uh, you just, I mean, just I run out of time. I I still have two parts. Remember, uh, okay. That's the second part. Prospect of building this new type of uh, how's the question brought up? Because you know when China rises and uh, when it gets. When, when its capability, the national power gets close to, I, I said close, but I said, I, I didn't say how close, but just, you know, it narrowed the gap. When it narrowed the gap with the United States, people think about the historical lesson we may learn from the Thucydides trap. Okay, it's uh, 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 in, 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 in ancient Greece. Uh, there was a war, and uh, the uh, historian Thucydides wrote this book, the Peloponnesian uh, War. And uh, okay, American one American political scientist, uh, Graham Addison, wrote this book, and he's, he he met, he uh, coined this phrase, the Thucydides trap, meaning when a power, when a latecomer. Uh, rises and uh, there will be a very dangerous situation between this power, rising power, and the, the uh, existing power. And it causes it, uh, this tra trap. Why is dangerous? Because he said in, in, the, in the past 500 years, in the past 500 years, uh, there were uh, 50, well, there were 50 such similar situation altogether, and 11 of them solved the, uh, you know, the conflict, the, solved the, the disagreement uh, through war. So most of the uh, rising power and existing power solved their disagreement through wars. So uh, that's, that's a dangerous trap. And uh, the, so the question is that how China and the United States uh, can manage to avoid falling into such a trap. Um, 
And also we have a hegemonic war theorem. Uh, uh, the uh, main author, uh, many author uh, wrote about this, but the main author uh, was uh, Robert Gilpin, also American uh, American political scientist. And he said, "When okay, this is my summarize. Okay, um, uh, it's when division of the interest, you know, as a as a as a realist, I." You know, the realism says that the, uh, the, the, the interest, the global interest is divided according to the uh, distribution of power, okay? Um, and he said when the distribution of, uh, Gilpin is also a, a, a diehard in, uh, a realist. When, uh, he, so he, he said that the, uh, you know, when the division of the interest departs from the div- distribution of power, then a war is likely if the, these two powers cannot solve their uh, problem peacefully, then the war will be the last result. So Xi Jinping said, "Well, can we try to avoid this Thucydides trap?" And he said, "So he, he, his proposal is that to build a new type of great power relations, and." Uh, uh, basically, there are three main points in his proposal. One is, number one, mutual respect of vital interest. And number two, no conflict. And number, uh, no conflict and confrontation. And number three, win-win cooperation. Okay, this is the uh, possibility. I think this, uh, you know, if, uh, if both sides try and if both sides try really hard, I think it's possible. It is possible to avoid the Thucydides trap, meaning that the two countries, America and China, can avoid a war. And uh, the reason I summarized eight, eight points, one, the, the most important for a realist is the power, is the power position, all right? The, the gap in national power. So I, I, th- this is why I said I, I agree with Professor Sir just talked about. He talked about that China, China's uh, power is still far behind the United States. You know the gap is very, very big. And if the if the gap is is really big. then the United States won't take so-called China threat so seriously. And if they don't take this so seriously, the relationship between the two countries will not get worse, will not not deteriorate. All right. Historical strategic partner. This is history, okay, during the Cold War. Many, probably many facts uh, you, you young people don't know, but uh, during that good old days when we, China and the United States were quasi allies against the Soviet expansion, Soviet expansion, uh, there were almost, there were actually quasi military cooperation between the two countries. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, this is also history. Since opening up USS facility China 
integration into the international system. Even America always emphasized that we want help. We want help China to merge into the international system, but we also we want to reshape its behavior. Okay. All right. Among major international issues, the two powers have no head-on conflict and confrontation. Uh, economic independence, all right. Chinese admiration of modeling after the U.S. This, I, I think, all Chinese are quite. I know this quite well. Uh, uh, Chinese admiration of the uh, U.S. Okay, I, I just, I, I just give one evidence to show you how. You know, if you put all your money in one country or in one bank, or if you send your children to one country for education, what does this tell you? Need I say more? <laughs> we two countries have over 100 dialogue mechanisms, more than 200 sister cities, town, city, state, province, and the student. There are 190,000 Chinese students studying the U.S. and 20,000 American students study in China. Okay, this is the prospect. I look into the future. Mutual assured destruction. Keep this balance of terror so it eliminates the possibility of major war. Look, this is major. Okay, I didn't say, uh, you know, a minor war or or probably, you know, a war in other uh, 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 armed conflict in other form. Uh, that that's that's totally possible. But major war, no, not. And. Uh, only if mutual, the two countries uh, respect mutual vital interests. If China refrain from, refrains from uh, challenging Americans' leadership, and the U.S. refrains from containing China's growth, and I think both countries can do this. That that's no problem about this. Um, and also, it's important to keep the right pace. Uh, it, only if China could maintain heartbeat slower in its claim of redistribution of interest. And only if the U.S. could avoid procrastination in such adjustment, the power transition process could be peaceful. Chinese nationality may turn out to upset logic of Western international relations. Western, what's the logic of Western international relations? It says... When the country becomes strong and capable, the natural, the natural outcome is its pursue hegemony. In Chinese, we said But I said, probably not. This, you know, this logic probably do not fit in Chinese nationality because we Chinese all know that we have uh, so many classics teaching us, teaching the Chinese, don't be number one. 
<laughs> right? Uh, you, you, you know all these teachings, 枪打出头鸟, 树大招风, 人怕出兵猪怕壮, so, the, the Westerner, the Westerner like, like an adventure, they like pioneer, pioneering, adventure, you know, they, 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 they want to be number one, they want, they, they want to be, you know, yeah, just outstanding, etc., etc. But China, we, you know, since you are a child, you know, your, your teaching is always, you know, don't be too good. You know, just, <laughs> number, number two is good enough, you know. So, probably, I argue when, when, when I discuss, you know, you know Mir Shima, right? Chicago, Mir Shima, a true realist. I invited him to Nanka University. I talked to, I discussed this issue, these issues with him. And he, I agree with him. I agree with him. Oh, I run out of, oh, I, I finish after I tell you this story, all right? <laughs> you know, he's, his position is that China and the United States, there will be, eventually there will be war. The rising power and the existing power have no way out to avoid the Sicilian trap. And one of his argument is that he said, "We know what China wants, you know, years down the way. Even though China is not currently is probably not strong enough to uh, to challenge Americans to Germany, but." Sooner or later, there will be one day that China will be in that position, will do that. Why? He said, when I was a little child, he said, my grandmother told me the story. He said, what a goose wants is what a gander wants. Do you Americans have such a thing? <laughs> <laughs> he, must be, he must fabricate it. Never heard of that one. <laughs> okay, anyway. Uh, goose, by the way, goose is a female uh, goose. Uh, <laughs> gander, uh, goose is female. Gander is male. So he said, we, if we know what goose wants, we know what gander wants. <laughs> Meaning that we know when United States get to the, you know, to number one in capability, what they did. <laughs> We, we, can, we can forecast, we can foresee what China wants when, you know, when its power goes up. I said, that's not necessarily true. Because <laughs> what goose wants are genders. <laughs> <laughs> Finish. I already, I already see my time. I, I just finished one. China has no, China has neither intention nor capability to challenge the existing world order. It doesn't have this intention because so far China has been a benefactor of the, uh, of the current existing international order. I, I stop here. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, thank you. I, I, I certainly feel much more reassured now after that. And, uh, but I, I'm worried about the University of California at Berkeley. Um, <laughs> But they produced you as well, so we're okay, I think. Yeah. So um, I'm not going to say anything. I, just, I think we should just open up to questions now because we've got about 20 minutes or so. So does anyone want to start the ball rolling with a question up there? Yeah, someone up there? Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Um, hi, uh, thank you for providing the very realistic and grounded account of U.S. and uh, Sino relations at this point. But it would, be a, it would definitely be an exaggeration to say that U, uh, U.S.-China relations is a zero-sum game. But my question is, is there any dimension that is possibly a zero-sum game? For example, territorial claims in the South China Sea, or maybe if something happens in Taiwan. And a related question would be then, because uh, I'm, from, I'm from Southeast Asia. So because if there is a zero-sum game in a particular dimension, would then countries in Asia or Southeast Asia have to lean to one side? Do you want to respond to I'll, I'll start uh, if you want. Uh, I don't think we're at a, a stage of zero-sum game, but they easily could, uh, could be many issues. Uh, um, uh, that would be a zero-sum game calculus. I think the the... Let's take the, 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 the Xi Jinping's emphasis on mutual respect and uh, core interest. Uh, the Chinese have core interest, and those core interests involve the territory of other countries who are allies of the United States. And, uh, and the order in Asia is something that, as I emphasize, the U.S. puts a lot of stake in being a stabilizer in the region. And if the Chinese uh, act on their, their, uh, their, their core interest, uh, which uh, – uh, which are, you know, very sensitive issues, that could be a very zero-sum thing. I mean, that's a challenge. If China attacked Japan in the Diaoyu-Senkaku Islands, that would immediately bring up the U.S. Defense Treaty of Japan. There you have a zero-sum game, it seems to me, very much. So, so I think it can happen easily uh, in many places, uh, Taiwan, too. Uh, I don't think we're there. I don't think it's either side has any intention of doing this, but that type of dynamic could take place. On getting the countries in the region to um, to take sides, this is uh, I think the, the U.S. government certainly understands that that's a, a, a non-starter. That's really dumb uh, to try to get these countries to choose. Uh, I don't know who was behind this AIIB and, and getting Britain not to uh, be part of this, but in South in East Asia, that is not done. Uh, because the awareness is that if you want to alienate the countries of the region, just do that. And so the rebalance policy doesn't really – I don't see them doing that. I see them with a keen understanding that Asian countries are hedging, uh, they're calculating their own interests, and this can work for the United States in the sense that they, may, they will work with the United States uh, in various ways, and sometimes they won't, and they won't be friendly to the United States in many cases – but because of U.S. engagement with them, with the rebalance policy, they'll be stronger. And Asia will be full of stronger countries. And that's very much in U.S. interest. And it may not be in China's interest. I think it's on. It's, it's, it's off. Yeah. Wait. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> Well, I, I don't see – so as, as I said in my PPT, uh, U.S. and China, so far at least, I don't see any 
head-on conflict between these two countries. Um, a couple of months ago, when you know, in uh, at the height of the uh, uh, Southern China crisis, uh, people asked me, so if uh, if it's possible, or, or uh, you know, if it's possible that that uh, a war or, or armed conflict will occur uh, between the uh, you know two navies. And I said it's very unlikely because my reason is that what what these two countries pursue in the southeast uh, South China Sea are quite different. What China wants, China wants, China wants to fill those sands in those uh, islands, little islands, or or. Uh, what what do you call it? A reef, reefs, reefs, right? Mm-hmm. That's what China did. United States didn't didn't oppose that directly. You know, only the neighboring countries like Vietnam and the Philippines they they oppose this. Uh, the United States doesn't have a position on what China did that. But the uh, U.S. sending their navy uh, ships there just because to to redeclare their free voyage rights. China never opposed to that. So they can do their, you know, each country can, each, the Navy of each country can do their, their job parallelly. So you declare your right of free voyage and we feel sense in those Little islands and real uh, that China claimed to be their own territory. So it's not it's not like uh, China and Japan uh, on on Yu Island because <laughs> Japan said this island is mine and China says this is mine. So it's you know it's a right head on uh, conflict and, uh, and so so. So in such a situation, it's not zero. It's not zero sum game. And also on Taiwan, you mentioned on Taiwan. I think the United States has learned uh, from uh, its experience during Chen Shui-bian's administration. Truly, this is not a joke. Uh, because at first, you know, uh, George Bush Jr. Uh, supported um, uh, Chen Shui-bian's Min Jingdao. DPP. It's it's like playing with fire, but toward the end of Chen Shui-bian's administration, George Bush Jr. find it's very very dangerous because because Chen Shui-bian, you know Chen Shui-bian's uh, uh, those Chen Shui-bian those uh, uh, move. The word uh, Taiwan independence has approached the uh, bottom line of China's vital interest. And uh, the United States, at that time, the United States see, foresee a very clear prospect that, the, uh, that the China used force against, uh, against uh, the DPP. So uh, at that time, Judge Bush Jr., uh, did something that's very unusual. It warned Chen Shui-bian that if you go, if you go ahead like this, we will just leave you alone. Remember, 
at the, uh, you know, at the beginning of George Bush Jr.'s administration, he said something also that also exceeds that all the uh, past uh, U.S. president's uh, uh, promise because he said uh, he is going to use uh, uh, armed force to defend Taiwan's security. You know, he, he went so far as to, you know, to, to make some make promise that no other U.S. president has made. But then, less than eight years later, he totally reversed his position and warned Chen Shui-bian not to go too far. So I think, I think the American government has learned something from this. Okay, thank you. Um, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, sorry. In a minute, yeah. First, yeah, and then. Um, thank you, professors, for clarifying the impossibility of war between the two countries. However, when we look at Japan and Japan's um, regime trying to build up its military capability, do you think America is trying to threaten China vicariously through uh, Japan and its might? Um, should we take another question as well? Because, yeah, that's, um, that's fine. From just here, yeah, uh, in the this row, yeah. Thanks. We haven't got much time. So, yeah. so uh, when Taiwan just had their new woman president, what do you think will be the Chinese new foreign policy on the issue of Taiwan? Because this new president seems like anti-Chinese government. So what do you think? Good. Okay, thanks. So Japan and Taiwan, two easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't take long. I'll, I'll, I'll start. The, uh, I, I want to say uh, two things uh, first, though. Uh, first of all, I think the U.S. government uh, wants to go back where we were with Hu Jintao. The U.S. government isn't looking for trouble here at all. Mr. Obama doesn't want any trouble with China. And so, so the the uh, uh, and so that's that's the that's something rather than having these zero sum competitions thing, it's something that's been imposed on them as far as I can see, and uh, and then the um, um, let's see um, okay then well let's get to the uh, the I have one of the, oh the uh, the reclamation efforts, uh, the U.S. did protest that a lot, they, they saw this as as disruptive of the order in the South China Sea when the Chinese went about this this is part of the destabilizing situation. The, U, the U.S. protested this very much, uh, including Obama. So just a fact. What's the ground of its protest? It's very disruptive to the stability of the region, destabilizing. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, what's the, uh, what, what's the uh, say, it, 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 they, do they have any ground of, uh, uh, say, international law or what? what? Well, I don't, I'm not, I don't have the statements in front of me, but they did make a big, big deal out of this. That's, that's the point I'm getting at. Um, okay, the um, China being threatened by, uh, by uh, th the United States threatening China through Japan. Uh, Japan is a very important country for the United States strategic presence in the region. And uh, Chinese behavior has been pretty intimidating toward the Japanese. Uh, and so they seek more assistance. And the U.S. has been pretty strong in supporting Japan. Um, my sense is, I see this as more reactive, but, uh, but it, it, would China feel threatened by this? Probably. I mean, there's lots of things in, in Japan already that they should be f feel threatened by, and I'm sure they do. So it's, uh, it's, th this would add to that. 
but I don't think it's a, it's, it's a aha, let's threaten China through Japan. I think it's much more, I think it's much more jeepers. Japan's getting a lot of pressure from China. What do we do? I think it's that kind of reaction. Um, uh, China's new policy brought Taiwan. I, I wish them luck. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 the Chinese have, we talked about Asia being important for China. They have a very serious set of problems in Asia. We talked about Japan. We talked about North Korea. We've talked about the South China Sea. These are all problems that Xi Jinping has. And now he has Taiwan. And, uh, and this is, I was talking to some uh, on the side, talking to some people on the side here. Um, Mao wouldn't do this. Deng Xiaoping wouldn't do this. They would take one thing at a time. He, and this is the most important region for Chinese foreign relations by far. And he has four big ones. Good luck. No, I, I just think, I think it's, I, I, and, and I don't, and he's made him worse. In the Japanese case, he's made him worse. And I think uh, in the South China Sea, he's made it worse. South China Sea would have been easy if, it had, if the U.S. wasn't involved. But now the U.S. is deeply involved, talking about reclamation of reefs, this type of thing. He's got problems because of this. And so now he's Taiwan's add to the list. Okay. Uh, I think I make uh, two points. One, number one is that uh, uh, speaking of the uh, uh, Sino-U.S. relations, I think the uh, <coughs> you know we should we we should look at the uh, the uh, very foundation uh, the or, or the very fundamental thing in this relation, which is there. There, there are no conflict of vital interest of the two countries. That's the most important thing. Um, quarrels, disputes, and uh, you know, conflicts, that's, that, that's a full, that have, you know, full of the, uh, the, the history of the, of, uh, uh, of the, uh, um, uh, the, the the history of the relations between these two countries since since nineteen uh, seventies, uh, you know we we quarrelled a lot, disputed a lot. We you know uh, uh, some uh, American uh, put sanctions on uh, China for many many times and uh, put pressure on China and uh, China also um, you know in 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 Americans' eyes China is not. Uh, China is not cooperative at all, uh, 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 except you know when when deal with the uh, Soviet Union. So it's like you know these two these two guys they they you know they 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 don't have any fundamental disagreement or conflict of interest, but they their relations not smooth, not friendly. Uh, but you know, full of uh, dispute, uh, things like that. So, uh, my judgment is that I look at the fundamental things. That I that's the uh, that's the reason I, uh, you know, my, of my judgment that there will be no serious confrontation between these two countries. Uh, I uh, for 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 example, you talk about the uh, reclamation of those reels. I don't think the U.S. U.S. would would. Uh, run the risk of uh, fighting a war with China in the South China Sea just because those reels, uh, and uh, and uh, and uh, uh, on 
Sino-Japanese relations and also on Taiwan issues, I, I will repeat uh, that I think uh, Chinese government, United States government, and even the Japanese government, they, none of them wants war. None of them, them wants war. And the, the good thing is that, well, there was some time uh, that the, uh, you know, the government, sometimes the government doesn't want war inter, in, intentionally, but they sometimes they were just cornered without other choice. But fortunately, the, uh, you know, the Japanese government and Chinese government, and now I think they are out of this corner. And uh, I, I don't think any government will looking for, will look for a war. Uh, so I don't think such situation uh, uh, will, be, will be very realistic in the future. So we don't have to worry about that. We kind of run out of time, but I see the organizer wants to ask a question, so I guess that means it's all right to have a, another question because you're in charge. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> um, so first of all, really thankful for the uh, impressive speech we had. Um, so, like the uh, both professors, you guys are realists. Um, I am as well, because, like as John Mishmer said, every Chinese are realists. So, <laughs> but yeah, but like you guys had very concrete reasons and the rational calculation about national interest and the deriving to the the conclusion that there is very, I mean, low possibility that China and the U.S. is going to confront with each other entirely. But um, I actually have a more pessimistic, uh, pessimistic suspect. I mean, suspicion that. Like from the, the, the former Secretary of State Robert McNamara, his 11 lessons of life, he said the goodwill will, will not save us, as Professor Zhang mentioned about the intention. So, and also like the, uh, if we, we look at the history, historical record, like the, before the World War I, at the end of the 19th century, that was actually the height of the internationalism and cosmopolitan and like triumph of liberalism and like German philosopher Kant's ideas. But then the, suddenly the world just came in and descended into chaos. So I'm just wondering if that's possible that the, uh, like the irrational part of the, of the decision makers might overcome the rational force of, of the national interest and repeat the uh, history again. Thank you. I'd love to see Question. Great questions. So do you want to respond? Can we, uh, uh, well, he's, the, he's in charge, so I oh, guess he's in charge. time. Yeah. Okay, so um, just a quick point, because I do think we have differences, fundamental differences. And I, I want to just lay them on the table. Um, if you look at the debate in the United States and you look at the order in Asia, what, uh, the pattern that the critics look at is what they call gaming. China's gaming the system. It's probing. And in the South China Sea, that's exactly what they're doing. In East China Sea, that's what they're doing. So they don't want war. Obviously, that would be very detrimental for them. And they don't think this will lead to war. And individually, the little probes probably won't. If, but among the critics in the United States are those who say this is a collective effort to undermine the American position in Asia. And that's very important for the United States. And so how do you, so what, when do you reach a point where what the, the, the chairman of the Intelligence Committee of the House of Representatives said, this is a death by a thousand cuts. And the Chinese are carrying out this death by a thousand cuts, or they're slicing salami. And this is what the Soviets did in, the, in Eastern Europe in many cases, for example. And so do we deal with that more directly? Because the broader interest is the American position in the region. 
and stability in the region. The basic interest is a favorable balance of power in the region. Is that going to go? Is that going to be undermined? Piece by piece by piece. So I really, I just wanted to uh, add to the discussion because this is a very real view that one sees among the critics in Washington. I put Mr. Obama in one place. He explicitly said, because of this behavior in the South China Sea, the order of Asia is at stake. He said this. So this island building is part of that. So even if he feels that way, and every, as I indicated, every other candidate is, if they talk about China, it's further away. This is vital interest stuff. This isn't just quarrels. And so, uh, so we, we do have a point of disagreement here. <laughs> and so, uh, yes. And so, uh, Finally, at last. <laughs> so you, you will have this talk worth your ticket. Um, <laughs> this, I have to say that I totally disagree. I don't think that the United States have a vital interest in South China Sea. And I think the, uh, the logic you just you use is very dangerous. You said that the stability will, will get lost step by step, piece by piece. This is the logic of domino theory. This is, why, this is how the United States get, get, got into Vietnam War. And I don't think, I, don't think, I, I think the Americans learned enough lesson from the Vietnam War. They, they won't use the same logic to to <laughs> to to get a major conflict with China just because see look China never says China says you know we have this line this this line since the 1940s or even earlier and we just want to keep these islands and China now we even lose more islands to other countries than we have. All right, so it's not that we have, this is a limited claim or demand uh, of territorial. We, it's, it's limited. And uh, I, so I don't think that uh, you, you said that the stability will, will get lost to you step by step. That's, so I, I don't think that the, uh, the uh, I repeat, there, uh, I don't think there's the vital interest in, in that area. And I have evidence to prove, well, not proof, but I, to, to, to support my argument. During, at the height of the uh, South China crisis, you know, two things were going on. One is that the uh, commander, the commander chief of the uh, of the uh, uh, U.S. Pacific Fleet, the Seventh Fleet, was visiting Beijing. Number one, although they have uh, you know hard exchange of word uh, with the uh, Ch Chinese uh, military leaders, uh, but still, he was visiting Beijing. This is this this thing itself tells you something. Second. There was a joint military exercise between uh, U.S. and China Navy. Two things going on. If there is a war, you know, if the, uh, the two sides were thinking about a possible war between these countries, such things won't happen. Uh, and your question, I only say one thing, uh, very one short sentence. You said, what I, I have to admit the uh, you know the point of view I just present were very optimistic, and I only look at the bright side 
All right. But if you say, yes, I calculate according to the rational choice, decision making, logic. If he, but you say, if in any country some irrational thinking overcome the rational thinking, then, then we have war or, or other disasters. So, on that happy note, <laughs> this is obviously just beginning to warm up, this, 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 this disagreement here. I'm still thinking about the goose and the gander as well. But, anyway, um, but we're, we have run over time, so thank you very much indeed. It was a wonderful discussion. Thank you. Uh, there will now be a 10-minute break, and after break, there will be the last panel on reforming China's economic reform. So please come back to this theater in 10 minutes. Thank you.